Hello, this is your host, Donna Barr, and welcome to A Bazillion Ghost Stories. Does anybody really know a bazillion ghost stories? But then again, aren't all stories set in the past ghost stories? This episode is being published early for both my Patreons, who normally get to hear it two days early, and for the public because I am going to Emerald City and I won't always have upload or share capability there. I'm only taking my little iPhone with me and I only have a certain number of minutes on that because it's a track phone. So I'm going to publish this one early and you can all get to enjoy it. And then I will have the Emerald City bonus episode when I get back from Emerald City. So enjoy and look forward to You know how I've said that uh, all things in the past are ghosts. Well, this is kind of like doubly so because I'm going to address something quite horrible. And that was an exhibit in San Francisco on the Embarcadero of a horror museum using actual torture instruments. And what was really horrible was that someone really knew their anatomy so when a person's head was stuck in a head screw and their jaws were being crushed, that anatomy and that agony was correct. When a woman was being sawed lengthwise by a couple of guys holding her, that, that was correct. But oddly enough, I, who have always been a bit afraid of the dark because I don't see very well, and uh, have odd hearing, and of course I hit myself in the head with an axe when I was a kid, so perceptions are a little off. I went in this thing, and I got separated from the party I was with. It was a number of women who were in the comics industry, and for some reason, oh, I know why, we, we, we had all been to the top of the mark, and uh, we were all dressed up, and we had had a nice dinner and some wine, so we went out adventuring on the Embarcadero. So we went into this thing, and... This will tell you how frightening this was. These displays were being attended by adults, children, teenagers. And you know how teenagers are when they're, they're uh, normally afraid of something. They'll make noise, they'll laugh. Teenage boys up to 17, 18 years old were completely silent in this museum. People were practically tiptoeing through this display. And the way they had it set up was once you have had seen the lit display, you'd have to go around the corner. And I already know from having been in a lot of haunted houses how good people are at turning tiny spaces into miles and miles of corridors. It's amazing. It's kind of like, has anybody ever done an article on Horror House Feng Shui? Because they must be using something like that. But when you get around a corner, it was so dark. Well, you'd already lost what they used to call in Vietnam your night purple. I call it my night green. It's that light that comes up in your eyes when you've gotten used to the dark. And, of course, you had been looking to these brightly lit displays, which are horrifying, and you got around a corner, and it was completely 
dark. And you snuck up on the next one because you knew the next display was going to be gaslight. But that wasn't the thing that got me. The anatomy was one thing. Some Somebody had spent a lot of time and a lot of knowledge making those tortured bodies in plasticine or whatever it was back in the 80s. But I noticed in one display there was like almost a tall hitching post with a rope wrapped around it. And I was, okay, where does that go? So I stepped back, because I had to step back to follow the rope, which was going, went up to the ceiling in a hook, one of those round eye, eye hooks, a big one. And then it I kept stepping backwards. It was dark behind me. Now you're expecting something to come up in the dark, but that isn't what happened. As I stepped back and I swung up toward where the rope was going and I looked up and there was a screaming body right in front of my face. And I just froze. But the only thing that saved me was realizing not only whoever did it was amazing at anatomy and had spent so much time, but they they knew their horror psychology. So I kind of went through the rest of the display just admiring this person. And as I left, there was a quick little joke involving a light and a puff of air and then went out into the sunshine. sunshine. But, well, once again, humor had gotten me through a bad time in my life. And this was all artificial. It wasn't supposed to do anything to you. It wasn't supposed to give you a heart attack or anything. Just give you a bit of a frisson of terror. But that that particular little trick, somebody had thought about that one way too long. The podcast obituary, one of my faves, uh, was asking the other day about burial at sea. And this got me thinking about an actual incident I had seen not too long ago in which people had a memorial service on a Seattle ferry. It was a beautiful thing. It involved singing, putting flowers in the water, uh, a conch shell uh, blowing, which is a very sacred thing among people of the South Sea Islands. And I didn't know if they actually deposited ashes or not, because I didn't know what the announcement had said. Sometimes those ferry announcements sound like the train station announcement from Robots, the movie. Remember that? You can never understand them. And so I decided I'm going to look this up and find out uh, what the actual thing is about having a memorial on a Washington State ferry. And I didn't see whether ashes were deposited because I got there a little late. I just saw the beautiful ceremony. So I went to uh, the Washington State Department of Transportation's special occasions page, and that's how I'm going to say it because, you know, websites change, but they have a section on memorial services. Uh, want a special way to remember a loved one? We offer memorial services during non-peak travel times. And they give you the whole times. They give you all of the routes that you could possibly do it on. Uh, there's uh, information about whether or not they can do it a certain time. 
Um, but here's, here's really the things you need to know. Only one memorial per day per route will be scheduled. So filling out our memorial request form, and they have a link, up to a month in advance is suggested during spring and summer seasons. We charge a, a $150 fee for providing memorial services. The fee, which will be collected at the times of confirmation, covers administrative costs and helps keep this service accessible to the community. Ashes must be contained in a certified biodegradable container that can be dropped intact from a ferry. Therefore, this is the information that lets you know where they can drop it. I know that at sea, you're supposed to be three miles away from land, and most of these journeys are at least three miles, or however many knots that is. I don't know the, the, the terms of the sea. Um, but anyway, they have to be in a biodegradable container. Uh, such containers are sometimes referred to as journey orns. Lord, that's hard to say. And are designed to dissolve quickly after contact with water. A floral tribute may also be released, but must contain only biodegradable material, no plastic or wire attachments or ribbons, etc. Memorials occur at the sole discretion of the vessel's captain. And a scheduled memorial may not occur if a captain determines it is not safe due to weather or other unforeseen operational issues. A memorial may be moved to another operating vessel or may need to be rescheduled. And here are the actual instructions. Uh, once aboard, a member of the memorial group shall contact a vessel crew member Oh, and by the way, you have to be wearing masks. All right, this is a public function. And present a printed copy of the memorial confirmation email. The crew member will confirm with the captain that the activity is operationally permissible, no training drills, Coast Guard quarterly inspections, etc., and weather is conducive. If the captain approves the memorial, the group is led to the, the vehicle deck on the stern back of the vessel. A crew member will accompany one memorial group member beyond the restricted area while the biodegradable container or floral tribute is dropped into the water. Memorials must take no longer than five minutes to minimize disruption to regular service and vessel operations. Sounding of the vessel's whistle is at the sole description of the captain. And then they give you all the contact information. And this is quite beautiful. And if you think five minutes is not long enough to honor your loved one, that's a long time. They could do everything they wanted. They sang, they recited poetry, they threw flowers, and did the conch tones. And evidently threw the ashes in the water. So yes, you can have a memorial off a Washington State ferry. Now that we've been to sea, perhaps we need to talk about some of the sea-based art up here. And I cannot for the life of me think about what made me think about this particular subject. I had it written down. It said PNW. I think it was somebody complaining about the artwork uh, about animal teeth or something. I mean, I know, I know that I always have a bit of a snit whenever I see 
llamas or sheep or anything else drawn in an animation and they have top teeth. But then again, they're actually supposed to represent humans. Okay, I got it. I know what I was thinking of. Um, there's no use my getting uh, torqued off because the anatomy isn't perfect. These, after all, are actually humans. They're just in disguise playing characters. And the thing this reminded me of is that if you look at Pacific Northwest native art and you're wondering why killer whales might have square teeth or various animals' teeth seem to change or eyeballs, these are symbols. These are part of an alphabet um, of a symbology. And human teeth belong to humans. Bear belong to bear. And the eye of a killer whale belongs to a killer whale. So they might have painted what you think is a killer whale or a bear, if you can figure out form lines. It's a complex art. But if it's got the wrong eye or the wrong teeth, it's not a bear or a killer whale. It's a human masquerading as a killer whale, or it's a killer whale in its human form in its underwater village. Uh, it may be a bear who is being a human, or one of the bear wife stories, the woman when she becomes a bear, or her bear children. So it was very much about theater. You have to remember that these people spent all summer long putting food away, and then because of the weather, I mean, it was really impossible to do anything. Um, they stayed home, they ate, and so they wouldn't go batshit. They had theater. Uh, it was based on their spirits and their singing and their music, and you can still see some of it today um, at some of the special public presentations. And uh, some tribes might allow you to see the actual tribal ceremonies. Of course, you do not take photos at those. They are, you would not take photos in a church. You should not take photos at this. You know, you don't go to their funerals and take photos. Uh, you take photos at the public ceremonies. But this is something you should realize if you're ever buying native art. And yes, they sell it. They're artists. And they used to sell it in the 19th century to museums. Um, you'd see beautifully quill-decorated deerskin robes that came from the Lakota, and people say, oh, they took, their, they took their clothing. Or they only paid $50 for it. $50 in 1875 was a lot of money. They got paid as artists. And so did the basket people. But as I said, the symbology of Northwest art, you have to learn it. You have to know it. You have to know how to do those form lines. You have to know how to grind those colors. You have to know how to do this correctly, and I've got, I'm not saying anything against somebody using oil-based boat paints to put on totem poles, because basically that's going to last a lot longer, which is fine. That is part of the art as it's developing. It's why they have button blankets now, um, beautiful. They had ivory and now plastic buttons that they use to put on the blankets. It's gorgeous. It's fusion art. But if you get that symbology wrong... Well, we've all seen those idiots who've got the wrong tattoo, who misunderstood the writing on some pot noodles once, and have a what they think of as a Chinese tattoo that means strong, uh, and it actually means egg noodles, because they got the sequence of the sentence wrong. And the word strong actually means spicy. So, I don't know, maybe they should use them both and they'd be spicy egg noodles. That's not the worst nickname. That man is a spicy egg noodle. Both of them are good. But that's why if you see somebody just 
copying native art. First of all, this stuff is trademarked. This is copyrighted to them, not by our ceremonies, but by theirs. And they invented that. You, they invented copyright. Formerly, artists didn't own their own work. It was only after they met the people of the New Worlds that artists realized that you own your work. And, and this, this art is owned by families. If it is to be passed on or used by anybody else, you have to have a potlatch. You have to pay for it. Um, and it was considered payment. There were people who went across the plains and they would get near a tribe. And, of course, you always have this nonsense that, you know, the tribe the tribes people came out begging. They were not begging. They wanted a toll paid. And if you would not pay that toll, you were a war party. You got what you deserved. But if you paid your toll and passed through peacefully, these people had to live together. So some people would sing a song or play a violin. And that was considered legal tender. And they got through without any bloodshed or problem because they were obviously just traitors. They were peaceful people and they were willing to pay with art. And that's why you don't just go copy in Northwest art because unless you've studied it for a lifetime, you don't know how it works and you will look like a fool. And if you think you've got a collectible and you're going to run off to a museum with it, uh, the people at the museums have studied this stuff. They have bold bookloads full of how to read it. And this is like buying a Kincaid painting and saying, how much is this worth? Well, what did you pay for the frame? I don't know if I've covered this in detail before, but if any of you have seen the movie Some Like It Hot, Billy Wilder with Jack Lemmon and Tony Curtis as uh, two men who have to hide from the mob by dressing as women and doing quite a good job of it, um, there's an odd situation uh, just before the shooting uh, at the St. Valentine's Day Massacre in which Tony Curtis emphasizes the name of the woman who owns the car. We're looking for Nellie Weimeyer's car. And they're going to be driving out from Chicago. Now, the thing is, I don't know how close the Amish are there. I, I think they're kind of uh, living all through Pennsylvania, that area there. They're, they're the uh, German immigrants who were a religious sect. And uh, the thing is, they had a tradition called powwow. And that's got a, it, it's the powwow doctors. And it is a folk medicine tradition. Uh, it is not the same as a native powwow, but it was based on a lot of um, German ideas of, you know, if you turn three times in a circle and light a candle, this will ha happen. But uh, there was a situation in uh, 1928, and I'm taking this from a blog that I'm not going to share because, not the name, I'm just going to get some information real quick. They've got this in information correct, but I'm not going to share the blog because it's not got a good viewpoint on some of this stuff, but it's got good, good, good facts. Um, anyway, there's a man named John Blymeyer, listen to the name, um, that was thought of as a witch, uh, and the use of the term witch and hexen. Hexa is the German word for witch. Um, and it, uh, they evidently, there was a man named Blymeyer who broke into someone's name, someone named Rymeyer's home where they hoped to find a copy of 
an older book that you can look up if you need to um, that had come from Germany about folk magic, you know, how to put spells on people. You see, you see this today. People on Twitter sharing that one spell that, you know, if you want to fascinate a woman, give her a piece of cheese. And we all know that this is working magic in this particular case. Uh, so it's got these things. But people were... Uh, uh, believing these things. And the problem with believing any kind of folk tales, um, believing any kind of religious fairy tale, all these things, it can lead to bad things. We all know that with the witch burnings. But uh, according to the Gettysburg Times, they didn't find the book. They found Reimer, um and they killed and mutilated him. They thought that he had cursed them. So they killed and mutilated him. You know, they're going to raise the curse. Of course, there's no such thing as a curse. Then they tried to burn a house down. And uh, they, uh, the person in this blog is talking about, oh, it seems to have its references to scripture, but it's just magic and superstition, which, of course, it's all magic and superstition. And uh, But the name's Rymeyer, and what's the other one? Blymeyer? It's so close to Nellie Weimeyer. Now, Tony Curtis's character treats women badly. He uses them. Uh, they're throwaways. And he's the type of guy that Mar Marilyn Monroe talks about. A guy that uses her and throws her away. He's done with her. And that's how he's acted in the past. And the German tradition, in fact, a lot of folk traditions, have a situation in which... If you mistreat people, you may run into someone who can turn you into that person. And you have to live as them. So you can understand. So if you look at this name Weimeyer and associate it with possibly the powwow doctors. And let's say Ms. Weimeyer ran home and said, this guy did this to me. They could say, well, let's put him in a situation where he would have to live as a woman and would have to understand what it was like to live as a woman. And it makes a better person out of him. So I'm not saying that Nellie Weimeyer's name means this, but Billy Wilder just didn't throw things away haphazardly. If he put something into a movie, he meant something. And when Tony Curtis says Nellie Weimeyer's car, all I could think of was the powwow doctors, and he was about to get what he had asked for. Would you like to be part of this podcast? You can go to anchor.fm slash Donna-Bar and you can leave me a voice message with your story that can become part of this podcast. If you would rather have me read it, send a PDF or PDFA, double-spaced, larger type to Donna-Bar01 at gmail.com. You can also become a patron at patreon.com slash Donna Barr. And finally, if you would like to know anything about what I've done in my life that has to do with my work, conventions, etc., go to DonnaBar.com. Hope to see you there. I will also put all this information in the program notes. A spooky.